The, the vendors are trying to find the problem space as the problem they can solve. So I'm constantly going, no, no, stop that, put that down, don't touch that, take that out of your mouth. Today is January 18th, 2015, and this is episode 102 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Good evening, Mr. Bell. How are you, sir? I'm doing great. It's Sunday. It is Sunday. And fortunately, I even have tomorrow off, which is a miraculous thing. That's great. Unfortunately, I don't. So So it's kind of like a Saturday for me. Screw you. (laughs) And that's the show. Thanks for listening, everybody. (laughs) Ah, So, um, yes, the thoughts and opinions we express on this podcast are ours and do not represent those of our employer. Some of who are not making us work tomorrow. Well, apparently, okay. I'm still in my honeymoon phase with my new employer, anyway. So true, true. Give it, give it a couple of months. All right. So uh, jumping into our stories, our first story tonight. Is... Well, hey, before we do that, oh, sure. I just want to make a shout out and say I'm sad that I wasn't at ShmooCon. I really wanted to be at ShmooCon, watching all the tweets. It looked like a good time. Yeah, definitely. So. And uh, I did watch a lot of the the live stream, although there were quite a few streaming problems. I saw that. I saw one tweet where uh, apparently there was some Windows updates that was getting in the way of getting a stream up and going. <laughs> Is that just, what it was? That's what, that's what they said. Okay. I, I, I don't have any... I'm just repeating what was on their Twitter feed for ShmooCon, but I have been to Shmoo once before. Uh, it's so tough to get tickets, which is a frustration. Um for a lot of people, including me, but it was a good time. My buddy, who has since left us, uh, Michael Hamlin, who we're uh, actually having a memorial for, like a second memorial in Atlanta this this week, uh, got me tickets, and I had a great time, so that's an, yet another thing I have to remember him by, but uh, all that being said, uh, Shmoo is a good conference. If you get a chance to go, I would recommend it. Yeah, there were a, there were a number of really good talks. Um, I only had time so far to watch a couple of them. The one on bypassing uh, application whitelisting was was really interesting. Uh, there are a couple of other ones. Uh, like I said, the stream problems really were so problematic that I couldn't actually follow the whole the whole session. So I need to go back and watch them. Uh, there were some some talks on. Uh, intelli- open source intelligence gathering and things like that that looked looked like they would be really good, but um, due to the stream problems, they uh, I couldn't follow them. But in any event, uh, you're right; it did look like a great show. Uh, I'm I'm hopefully going to try to get out maybe next year. It just all depends on those tickets. I if mean, I they can sell in hit F5 fastest, I guess. Yeah, right? milliseconds. <laughs> Unless we can, you know, pull some some podcast ah podcast. You know, levers and go as media. I don't know. It's a thought. Oh, you know, we could bribe them with defensive security swag. like. <laughs> yeah, because that's valuable. <laughs> ah, yep. <laughs> Look, it's a defensive security t-shirt. Great. I need something to wash my car with. Oh, you know. Uh, ouch. <laughs> so, yeah, with that, um, how about we go get into stories? <laughs> Fair enough. 
Our first story comes from Dark Reading, and uh, the title is A Lot of Security Purchases Remain Shelfware. I, I suspect this isn't a big surprise to anyone, but a uh, uh, there was a survey done here by Osterman Research, who I've never heard of before, but it was con- it was uh, uh, I guess sponsored by Trustwave, and they surveyed 172 companies, and they found that 30% of the respondents report that they uh, they have made investments in security tools or software that are being uh, underused or not used at all. Uh, and uh, one company in particular that they said reported that 60% of their security software was shelfware. And, you know, it's, a, it's kind of a long article, but the net of it is, uh, they interviewed a, a number of different people, uh, that a lot of this ties back to uh, two things. Number one is the... Uh, the the motivation for purchasing this stuff in the first place is a lot of times compliance driven. And then the other is that they don't have the talent, the skills, the resourcing that's needed to run it. And uh, I, I, I've personally seen that in spades quite often. So, yeah, ditto. you know, I, I, it's an interesting thing to me because especially um, as as time marches on, IT is becoming more and more of a commodity thing, and the concept of wasting money is kind of this is really interesting, I guess. Um, but they did point out one that the, the very last sentence of the article I think is a bit telling, and they they point out that in, I'll just read the quote verbatim: in some cases, you get the non-technology business leadership putting pressure on security, saying. I don't want to be the next big target of a cyber attack. So what are you going to do about it? And the CISO often responds with, I get the fanciest firewall I can get. And, you know, there you have it. They make a couple of other good points that I like, that things that we've often said on this show, which is that not only is some of the gear not being utilized properly, or not being utilized, but it can add a false sense of security because uh, people high up in the organization believe that they might be having proper security implemented when they don't, and so therefore feel that they're less risk than they're probably actually at. That's a, that's a really good point, because you know, if you are at a certain level in the organization, you you know what, what yardsticks do you have to measure your security posture? And one of the most obvious is how much money are you spending on it? Yep. I think part of the problem, too, here is the CapEx versus OpEx debate. Organizations are okay spending on capital expenditures, but not necessarily on operational expenditures. And and for those who don't know that business term, uh, capex usually uh, covers purchasing a product, whereas opex covers the people to run that product. Right. And I really do think that's a huge problem. I don't know that people are factoring in the budget for people when they go out and buy these products. and I, Or if they are, maybe this is the oft-discussed security talent shortage biting these guys. And they mention in, in here, too, that often, often leads to managed services coming into the picture. But don't you think that in some cases at least, and I don't know if this is in a lot of cases or not, but the vendors or the, the purveyors of these security technologies don't really help the situation because they're, you know, they they either opaque 
they're, they're opaque in what it takes to run it or, you know, just downright dishonest, I guess, because they want you to buy their, their thing. And if they came out and said, well, you know, to buy this fancy firewall, you need in your kind of environment, you need 10 people uh, versus, yeah, just put it in and it does great. Uh, I'd say certain parts of vendor organizations are like that, i.e. the sales guys. <laughs> I don't know if the product managers or the professional services guys or senior leadership are as unethical in that discussion. Fair. Fair. Uh, but, you know, you going, know, going back to the to the CapEx versus OpEx, I've, I, I did see the, the comment about uh, engaging managed security services as a you know as a uh, an alternative to bringing on talent, but most of the time that's opex as well, right? That's true. That's true. So then, I don't know. If that leads towards the we just can't find the right people. But I'll be honest. I don't think managed services are even close to a panacea. There's a lot of caveats when you go to the managed services route. And I don't know that senior executives really understand the downsides of going managed services around security. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you, most of the, most often you have to have your own overlay, even if you outsource it, you have to have your own overlay to be able to translate what your MSSP is doing to, uh, you know, to take action for your, within your business. So, yeah. You still need to understand your individual organization, your risks, your culture, your risk tolerance, and your business goals. Uh, end of the day, the MSSP is really just handling the care and feeding typically and processing changes as you request them. That doesn't mean they understand what is normal and not normal and what they should and shouldn't. And, you know, yeah, they can tune your, I, your, your IPS and they can make firewall changes, but that doesn't mean they necessarily understand exactly what is the right stuff for those bits and pieces to be kicking out. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I've, I've seen interesting, not really conflicts of interest, but right. Different incentives by MSSPs who, uh, you know, who, uh, you know, obviously follow the, if it's not measurable, it's not manageable kind of mantra. And therefore they have to, you know, escalate a certain number of t- tickets per customer per, uh, you know, per time period and well you know that that can lead to interesting problems too because now you don't now a customer might not trust the veracity of the data that's coming out of their MSSP and everything you said right it's it's a it's a complicated problem um i think security as we've said and you often say is very local to your your business and you know when you've got a a, a business partner like an MSSP in there who is you know, you're just one of hundreds or thousands. They can't really practically customize their operation to suit you. So, yeah, uh, there's there are some times and places where they help, and it makes sense. I'm not saying that overall it's a bad decision. What I am saying is that there are caveats and there are drawbacks and limitations of managed services that I don't think are fully typically fully understood by leadership when they're making that decision. Fair enough. So moving on to our next story here, I guess the, before we go off the the point there is if you're going to invest in technology, you really need to in, you, you do some due diligence on what it's going to take to properly operationalize 
that technology and build it into your business case. Otherwise, you're 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 probably going to end up, you know, at best with uh, you know having to go back and re-justify or justify after the fact additional headcount or or additional expense. Uh, and at worst, you know, you could sit on the shelf and be a wasted investment. So, the other thing I would say is, what are you doing to test that security technology is actually functioning correctly and working as it should be? Are you testing it in some way? That's a great point. It's a great point. All right, so again, moving on, the next story is from Ars Technica, and the title is Google Drops More Windows Zero Days. Something's got to give. So I uh, thought this was an interesting follow-up to the story we talked about last week. So, um, yeah, there was even more Windows Zero Days that Google has released. Uh, actually, two, in fact. One of them apparently was not all that important. It impacted only Windows 7, and Microsoft said they're not going to fix it, and Google said, yeah, we wouldn't either. The second one was a a more significant information disclosure bug that impacts apparently most versions of Windows. And um, that was supposed to be patched in this uh, last week's Patch Tuesday release. But apparently they're in grand Microsoft fashion lately, there was a bug. I suppose the good news is they didn't release the the buggy patch like they have a few times in in recent history. Uh but the the downside is that Google went ahead with their their announcement uh which basically meant that this patch or this vulnerability was uh going to be unpatched or is going to be unpatched until next month's patch Tuesday. So uh yeah, this is just continuing the bad blood I think between Google and Microsoft, although Microsoft seemed to have a little bit more measured of a response to Google to this time. So, but the uh, the drumbeat continues, and I think as the as the title says, something's probably going to give. Right? I, I don't know what it's going to be yet. I, I don't know. Why does something have to give? I I don't see it necessarily changing. I. I... I see Google continuing to follow this 90-day time bomb approach or whatever you want to call it, you know. And I continue to see Microsoft standing by Patch Tuesday. And if they get it done in time, they get it done in time. There is something to be said for the fact that when patches come out on a regular timed basis, enterprises have the opportunity to test plan and deploy them in a rational manner that is not disruptive to the organization. We we seem to assume that all patches are, are created equal and should have been immediately installed without any testing, and that's just not the case. So I think Microsoft's kind of in a tough spot here because they have to cater to their enterprise customers when it comes to patching and the disruptions that cause that patches cause. And so they're in a position of saying, hey, if we keep throw, going back to a, the approach of throwing patches out willy-nilly, we're going to cause probably more instability and more downtime. And it's a tough position for them to be in. At the same time, I'm not saying that what Google is doing is wrong, uh, but I could foresee this stalemate continuing for a long time. Yeah, it, this, is a, this, this story's been unfolding pretty publicly and on social media and in news articles. And the, uh, 
the general consensus I would say is that people expect Microsoft is going to is going to change their their policy or their practice. So I think that that's what the reference in the in the titles about. But you you could be right. They I mean every, everybody could just be uh, continuing as they are. I suppose. But uh, and and also by the way I agree with you on the uh, the, the timed releases. I think um, monthlies. I don't know if monthly is the right frequency or not, but I can tell you that quarterly, like Oracle, is probably not the right time frame. So, yeah, it's a challenge. Um, I don't know that I have a better idea right now. <laughs> I'll put it that way. No, that's fair. All right. So um, anyway, I, I, I included that one because uh, it was a follow up to last week's story. Nothing uh, earth shattering there. The next story we have comes from eWeek, and the title is "Why Effective Computer Security Means Covering All Your Bases." So this uh, this article is an interview with LinkedIn's chief security person named Ganesh Krishnan, and uh, Ganesh goes goes through and. I think um essentially highlights the, the some of the the big risks with phishing you know you basically says that hey look uh as defenders we're grossly outnumbered and therefore we you know we need to as a, as an organization we all need to to pitch in and pay attention to security and I think that's even more particularly relevant because of the risk the risk of phishing uh, and I find that really interesting because LinkedIn is one of the sources commonly used for spear phishing. Uh, and, you know, in fact, recently there's been a couple of uh, uh, phishing campaigns using LinkedIn to harvest credentials. So, uh, but, but anyway, there was um, uh, one thing you did say. Uh, he has, he gave some key tips and his key tips are to log everything and keep the data for at least a year, including firewall logs, VPN logs, and access and antivirus logs. I think that's a very important thing. Hopefully, people have that uh, you know, gotten that message so far. Uh, and he, you know, he goes on. Um, well, I guess I already covered the the phishing part. So, anyway, any uh, anything you picked up out of it? No, it's pretty solid. Solid points. Uh, he talks about you know getting the secure development lifecycle with your developers. You know, preventing phishing, testing your employees by doing live safe phishing attacks against your own environment. I get it. Uh, those those are all good things to do. I don't think there's anything too earth shattering here. Uh, the the one thing that I did I did want to bring up I lost it in my notes is that. The the reliance on the reliance on people being able to detect a spearfish or or even more contemporary um, you know, mass fishing is becoming much more difficult, and I think it's becoming uh, I would say a little dangerous to assume that mere education is going to be. A, a reasonable backstop for, uh, to protect against phishing. And, you know, I, I was thinking, I was just kind of playing that out in my mind. 
you know, if you train people to fear fishing enough, it's kind of going to create gridlock, you know, because people have a job to do. Yeah, that's a really good point. That there is a certain value of diminishing returns on getting people to fear email too much. Yeah, exactly. And so, I, I you know, I'm not saying that that I have a, a a lot better answer other than things we've talked about in the past, like um, limiting the amount of damage that that can happen as a result of somebody's computer being compromised through phishing, and uh, in, you know, looking at what are the best practices of the day in, in uh, preventing malware. And and even so, uh, there's, there's really not a lot of solid solutions. You know, uh, everybody's testing, their, not everybody, right? But many of the malware authors are testing their wares against, you know, not only the traditional virus sets, but also, you know, the FireEyes and the AMTs and, and other related things. So... You know that those those controls are becoming less and less uh, useful. I, I would say that probably some of the more useful things are the application whitelisting. Um, you know, commonly commonly available today, right? So, yeah. Again, not perfect as we've seen a lot, but a lot better raises the bar. Yeah, yeah it makes it a lot tougher for those guys to to get through. Absolutely. All right, so our next story comes from Krebs on security. I, w- I oh, will go say, ahead. just before we jump off that, though, uh, to be a little snarky, when I'm like, hey, we got a story from the guy who runs LinkedIn's security, I expected a little more out of this article. He really doesn't go into much detail about much. No, no. Uh, and, you know, I, I wondered, uh, it, it was probably a little tenuous or difficult, right? Because of, you know, and LinkedIn's had some interesting information security past, right? And, you know, they, for a time, had the nickname of LinkedIn. Right. So, you know, I'm sure they're, I'm sure they're uh, being a little cautious as they come out of the gate. But, you know, uh, I I agree with you. And I also found, I, I found it just immensely ironic that the main theme of his point was phishing when, you know, LinkedIn is the thing that many of the spearfishers will use to target their marks. Yeah, you think that he would have gone into how to know a real email from a fake one, how to verify LinkedIn, you know, don't click on any of the things that say they're live from LinkedIn, go launch a browser, log in LinkedIn directly. I was kind of expecting that kind of stuff. Or, Or... You know, be measured in what kinds of things you list, you know, as far as your skills or what have you, you know, because, um, you know, let's face it, if you, if you want to, if you want to target a bank, right, what are you going to do? You're going to search LinkedIn for that bank's name and you're going to, from there you can find out, okay, well, based on their job openings, what kind of technology do they have based on, you know, who, uh, who's working for them and what they have listed as their responsibilities, who do I want to target my phishing campaign against? And maybe I use LinkedIn directly as the platform, and maybe I don't. So, yeah, you're right. I, I think uh, I think they could have done more. All right, so moving on. The next story comes from Krebs on Security. And this is a, also a follow-up to a story we covered last, I think, um, I guess it was December. So, um, 
two parking providers, Parkandfly and OneStopParking.com, at the time had apparently been breached. Um, and uh, as, as it turns out, both of them have admitted publicly to being breached. Um, Parkandfly, uh, they released a statement that basically said that uh, they are working with third-party data forensic experts to uh, to investigate, and the data compromise has been contained. And the potential, uh, the, the one thing I, by the way, take the, as a takeaway, I think this is a great way to not phrase things. They they characterize the, uh, the the credit card data that was stolen as being at risk. And I would say that the data is not at risk. The data has been stolen, right? It isn't at risk. People who might continue to use your site might be at risk. You know, this is this is a two different. You know, so it's a I guess a fine line in my mind, I suppose. Uh, but anyway, they say that the data potentially at risk includes credit card numbers, card holder card holder name, billing address, expiration date, CVV. Uh, other loyalty customer data, including email addresses, passwords, and telephone numbers. So, awesome. And uh, Krebs also contacted Park and Fly, who admitted in, a, I guess, an email exchange that they were compromised using a vulnerability in Joomla. Which, by the way, is one of the most popular remote access tools on the internet. Not many people know that. This is the kind of hard-hitting journalism you provide to the show, Jerry. I, I do what I can. <laughs> so, um, so anyway, in any event, um, apparently Joomla was exploited using patches or using a vulnerability that was patched back in September. So um, they knew that the site was vulnerable, but however, they did not patch it because uh, that patch broke some portions of their website so they accepted they accepted the risk well that is actually such an interesting topic to me right now because most of the philosophy around this sort of thing is we'll just go patch well sometimes you can't just go patch so then it comes down to what other techniques can you utilize especially when it's a known live exploit that's being seen in the wild how else can you defend against that exploit whether it's a web location firewall sitting in front of it, whether it's something that, okay, we know this might happen. How can we instrument the heck out of our website to make sure we know the minute it does happen? You can't just say, well, it's going to break stuff. We can't patch and throw your hands up and walk away. There's got to be a third option other than patch or don't patch. Right. Right. And I, I, I think that is a very important lesson. And, and also, you know, as we've also said, be able to detect be able to detect when someone has gotten in and uh, gotten past your your other controls. So that's you know that's another another key thing that apparently is missing here as well. So yeah, um, it, it was you know in this article, Kreb goes on to describe how these cards were for sale on the same sites that Home Depot, Target, Sally Beauty, PF Chang's, Harbor Freight, and a bunch of other companies' credit cards were for sale on. Uh, however, they were for sale in a different way, right? They 
They're called CVVs instead of dumps. So they're, they're only usable online. So clearly, as part of your data leak prevention system, if you in some way are a retailer, you should be monitoring that website is what it really comes down to. I agree, yes. I think banks Brian are. Krabs, Brian Krabs is my IDS. I've seen that T-shirt floating around. <laughs> I have as well. Um, actually, Brian Krebs retweeted somebody's picture wearing one, so pretty cute. <laughs> that's that's got to be a little surreal. I would think so. Uh, but anyhow, uh, I yeah, if, if you're a retailer, that might be a good a good thing to uh, you know. I don't know if you could do a honey record or or what, but um, I know I do know from some previous releases by Krebs that. Banks apparently do actively monitor, uh, and actually, I, th- I think it's more than monitor. I think they actually buy uh, from time to time. They buy some of these, hence fueling the underground economy. Well, you know, they got to eat. This is true. This so, is true. all right. The next story we have comes from Data Breach Today. The title is "Report: Colon Mercenaries Behind." APT attacks. We need ominous music here. Dun, dun, dun. And the subtitle is Espionage as a Service Offers Government Deniability. So this is a a pretty lengthy interview or report on uh, on a paper that was released by, I guess it's called, pronounced TAIA, T-A-I-A Global, uh, which is Jeffrey Carr's company. And uh, basically what, the long and the short of it is that they have detected at least some, in some instances, some of these otherwise credited as uh, nation-state attacks are actually being performed by contractors, third-party organizations of, of varying capabilities, funding, sophistication, uh, and, you know, there, there are some advantages, you know, they, they do go into Sony a little bit and say that, you know, Hey, if it, if it was North Korea that was behind this, it's conceivable that they actually hired someone else to actually execute the attack. Right. So, which, by the way, not saying that did happen, but that would help answer a lot of the weirdness around Sony. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and it's like I said, it's a, it's a pretty long article. He cites specifically two cases, one of which is in, uh, in the U.S. There was a, a Chinese business person who was indicted in Canada for stealing, uh, I guess it was violating the ITAR, for stealing data on the F-22, the F-35, and the C-17. And uh, his his co-conspirators, who apparently weren't named, were alleged to have been the people responsible for the intrusion. And it's not believed that they are in uh, cahoots with the government, and the Chinese government. So most likely it is a, a case where they are, um, you know, they're they're buying it for a competitor or you know an adversary, or um, you know they 
are stealing it to then go try to put it on the market. So don't really have that bit of information. Uh, there's another another case uh, related to Airbus, which has a similar kind of a, a, a flair. One of the points they, they, they bring up here is that unlike credit card data, you can't go to a you know, a, a website clearinghouse and find F-35 plans for sale. So it's it's kind of difficult well, to tell maybe, what... Maybe not on the websites you go to. Oh, fine. Okay. I just don't hang out to the right parts, I suppose. <laughs> uh, but Sorry, go on. <laughs> no. So you, it's difficult to tell where this information is, uh, you know, is going from and going to. So... Um, I think it's an interesting point that I've been concerned about for a while. And and that is that, you know, these, especially in this post Edward Snowden world, right? None of this stuff is that complicated, right? It's, yes, it's, it, it is uh, not, not to take it away from, from uh, the skill level that it takes, but a lot of the stuff doesn't take a nation level funding, right? It takes, some skilled people, correct. No, no yeah. question. And and I think in a post, one of the, in my mind at least, one of the key things that was missing is simply the creative genius behind the the methods. And I think that uh, though a lot of the details of implementation weren't disclosed in Edward Snowden's leaks. The, just the simple ideas are, are, are I think, fueling a, a, a kind of a boom, and um, you know, and also Stuxnet and Gauss and Flame and all of those, you know, Regin. I think, um, I think these, and they call them mercenaries, right? I think these mercenaries and, and others like them are are paying attention, and. Uh, and I think we're going to see their capabilities grow. And that's really problematic because um, for a couple of reasons. One, like with Sony in North Korea, you may see some really odd cases of <clears throat> excuse me, foreign policy being, uh, being crafted based on bad attribution, as we've talked about in the past. Uh, but, but the other is there's just going to be a lot more of them. And uh, and people or, or organizations who would not otherwise be victim to something so sophisticated are now going to find themselves having to defend themselves against you know this kind of technique. And we said in the past, you know, if the NSA is your adversary, it's kind of game over, right? You're, you're you they can outspend you a hundred, a thousand, a million to one. It's just a fact of life. Um, but if uh, if many of the same tactics and techniques are available to you know Bob the you know the uh, the, the data exfiltrator for hire, you, you've got problems. So I think this is going to be a developing space that we need to to really pay attention to. Yeah, it's an interesting one. It's not surprising. I'm glad it's getting some press. I have a couple of views on this. It's something I've said often on this show. If you are an enterprise and you are charged with defense, frankly, I don't think attribution matters. I don't think it matters who's attacking you. You still have to defend against it. And let's say you figure out that tomorrow 
some random groups coming after you. What are you going to do differently in that time frame? It's probably game over at that point if you haven't already developed your defenses to the point that you're ready to go. You can't dig the moat and put up the walls in 12 hours. So that being said, attribution is not something I think most enterprises need to care a lot about. I think they need to care about running their defense as well, spotting those low and slowest attacks, spotting the data exfiltration, assume they're being breached all the time, and go after that stuff. Who's doing it is kind of irrelevant. Yeah. Uh, you know, in, I, in my opinion. I suspect, and I know that um, this has been a bit of a hot topic with people like Richard Baitlick, right? And I will tell you, I think that there may be a narrow segment of the economy where it makes sense because they have and I, and I, I'm I'm pontificating or I'm I'm being a flip here right but they they have become so sophisticated in their defense capability that it makes sense for them now to worry about or to think about who their adversary is because they've got everything else so damn locked down great all right if you're there wrong you probably <laughs> exactly can't. Right, but but otherwise, I think you're, I think you're spot on because it doesn't it doesn't matter if it's uh, you know the the Liechtensteinian or the Luxembourgian government or if it's uh, you know if it's um, or the Albonians who are well yes absolutely feared amongst those of us on the blue teams. However, I just see so many CISOs in their talking points. Under, you know, we need to understand who our adversary is, so we understand their techniques and tactics. And I, I think that's all bunk. I really do. I think you need to understand techniques and tactics. I don't think that in any way matches up with your adversary. Yeah, I, th- I think you hit on the, the the point. You need to understand what are the techniques and tactics and tools that are being used. Period. Right. Right, because those techniques and tactics, they very well might be used by the Russian government today. But next week, when the uh, Luxembourgians see what the heck the Russians have been doing, well, now they've adopted it. And by the way, one of the one of the Snowden releases or leaks today, I, I, I don't know when it came out, right? But talked about how the NSA was watching one government attacking another government and they saw the attacking government using zero days and so they co-opted the zero days and started using it for their own advantage that kind of thing i bet happens all the freaking time and it's not just a government thing right all of these leaks like i said they are priming the pump they are giving really smart people ideas on how to go do this stuff i mean one of the talks at schmookon was given by the NSA playset people, which is a fantastic talk, by the way. Again, same problem with the with the live stream feed. I could only see about half of it, but the part that I saw was really cool. You know, the whole the whole problem here is just one of imagination. You know, this is a, a, a situation of you know the the code isn't beyond the capability of many people to write. The tools aren't beyond the capability of many people to build. It's just a matter of of thinking it through and having an idea. And now these ideas are out there. You know, we're 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 seeing details from you know classified document leaks from Mandiant and other reports from um, antivirus company write ups on malware. 
it's coming from all different sources. They're all learning from each other. And I think that makes the point on attribution not being a really relevant topic to the 99% of companies really a key factor. So There's really no unique capabilities out there. Right. Or if there are, it's not unique for long. Right. And it still doesn't change your defense. You still have the same set of controls and the same problems to deal with. Right. Uh, you know, and especially because it, nowadays we're assuming a breach will happen. So how they breached, yeah, you want to stop it. But if that's the only thing you're focusing on, you're probably losing. You really need to be focusing on identifying that breach happen quickly. Right. So the other thing is, is we don't really talk politics on the show much. This is getting into a little little politics of uh, I think it's very plausible and realistic and likely that various organizations, uh, various governments are, are hiring out to mercenary hacker groups. That makes perfect sense. But this makes, as we said, attribution hard. Uh, but they mentioned something in here that I was not aware of that I need to do some more looking into. And quoting from the article, the so-called – Talon report from United Station, sorry, United Nations states that cyber attacks can be viewed as armed aggression and treated as an act of war. Yeah, that was uh, that came out last year. I rem- there was a there was a big hoopla about that. I missed it, and I guess this is uh, a NATO document because when you actually go follow the link, it goes to NATO's websites uh, and whatnot. So, all that being said. Now attribution at a government level starts to become a lot more sketchy and a lot more imperative, <laughs> right? Because now this could launch – you know, we've joked about the fact that the Sony hack could launch a war with North Korea and a good chunk of the non-government InfoSec experts out there are not convinced that it was North Korea. But if NATO feels that this could be uh, you know, an act of war – Frankly, it's really, 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 really easy, relatively speaking, to spoof and do a false flag on somebody else as the origin of attack to start an armed conflict. And that's something that is kind of scary. Absolutely. Absolutely. And as a matter of principle, we are not even going to mention, aside from this point, the silly, silly, silly movie Black Hat that just came out because that's just not. <laughs> I haven't seen it yet. I, I've heard I've, that it's. I've heard that it's not as horrible as it could have been, but uh, that's all I've heard. So. Yeah, no, not going to go there. So, all that being said, I don't see that this changes the game much. I think it's a well that makes perfect sense. It's something we've assumed going on for a while, and I think we'll see more and more examples of this. But it just makes attribution that much harder. Well, I, from from my standpoint, I hope that organizations can take can take this this kind of report and and use it as evidence that you know we we shouldn't worry about whether it's Russia or China trying to steal our credit card data. You know that. That isn't the thing that we should be worrying about. It should be more along the lines of the tech, the techniques and the tactics. So that's, you know, I think uh, that for me, that's that's what I hope people get out of it. So 
Anyhow, moving on to our last story, which comes from ZDNet, and the title is New Report, DHS is a Mess of Cybersecurity Incompetence. Now, I know this is going to be a devastating thing for many people that listen to this. Um, so, yeah, the, this is a, it's a very, very long article about uh, a report that the uh, uh, the federal U.S. federal government released, which was titled "A Review of the Department of Homeland Security's Mission and Performance," uh, and you know it's uh, boy, where to start? So, um, I would say one of the key takeaways is that there was a uh, uh, some noise made or or some statements made by the President of the United States saying that we need to improve our cybersecurity posture. We need to do a, a number of things. And this article kind of systematically pecks at each one of those saying, you know, this government issue report says that those things as implemented by the D- Department of Homeland Security are wholly ineffective, which is really concerning. So, um, so I'm, I'm trying to find some of the the uh, uh, the key tidbits here. One the the section on cybersecurity, by the way, is titled "The Department of Homeland Security is struggling to execute its responsibilities for cybersecurity, and its strategy and programs are unlikely to protect us from the adversaries that pose the greatest cybersecurity threat." You know, it, it is uh, it's about ten pages of just unmitigated. Governmental fail here. <laughs> it is just epic fail. And I'm not in any way giving these guys a pass, but one thing I've learned is the larger and more complex the organization, the more difficult it is to secure it. And oh. I think this is clear that these guys are in way over their head on this stuff. And, and frankly, I don't know what they're going to do to fix it, but they this this article pretty much shows how amazingly incompetent the government security is. So whenever anybody says, well, so-and-so used to work with the government on, on IT security, I just laugh inside. I have yet to see a government organization and people come out of the government space do IT security better than private business. Yeah, I, I do think you're right. It is um, it is related to your your size, right? And... Well, I think it's more than just that. I think it's the culture and the the pay scale and everything else that goes into government service makes cybersecurity incredibly difficult. I think the military is the only ones who are really doing it well with a completely segregated, classified environment. And they actually do a decent job, Snowden accepted, that sort of thing. But otherwise... Well, and they had their Twitter account hacked, so I mean... I guess there was oh my that. God. There was that, <laughs> right? Um, Somebody guessed their password. Oh my God! <laughs> watching nukes from Twitter was uh, yes was was really shocking. Is it what was the most shocking thing was how much uh, how much analysis has been done about what does what does the what does it mean that Central Command had their Twitter account compromised? And I think the more important question is. What does it mean that Central Command has a Pinterest account? I 
uh, like many, had no idea these even existed. So it probably just raised their profile dramatically. It was it's probably like the Burger King thing. Remember when Burger King faked their uh, their account getting hacked? Oh yeah. Well, do we even know if Centcom was using an outsourced media PR no, firm anyway I, for that? I asked the question and uh, no, I never got a satisfactory answer. I, I would I would not be surprised to find out that they had. That's pretty typical. It's pretty common. I mean, it's a PR thing. It's not like they're. Yes. Well, anyway. Um, yeah. You know this, this this report just goes on and on, and it talks about how um, they they don't do a good job at patch man. Oh, actually, here here's a here's the quote. Um, this the subheading is DHS cybersecurity programs are unlikely to help are unlikely to protect us. The report cautions about DHS's limited strategies, noting while patching and cyber hygiene are clearly important. They are only basic security precautions and are unlikely to stop a determined adversary, such as a nation-state seeking to penetrate federal networks to steal sensitive information. And and that you know is is um, I, I I think for me one of the the concerning things is that in the the in the private space we don't have to worry about you know, uh, for the most part, data being stolen that will result in lives lost or things like that, you know. And it is concerning to see that being written about an organization who is chartered with protecting data that could result in such things. So in any Here's event... Here's a couple of, couple of key takeaways I got from this, just, just quoting... <laughs> because it's so if you read this it is it is just epic fail after epic fail after epic fail uh but <laughs> quoting one of the key concerns about the ncps which is the broad basically intrusion prevention system is that it relies heavily on signature-based detection it operates by scanning traffic to and from federal networks for the fingerprints of known threats and vulnerabilities such systems can only protect against known threats with the same fingerprints. Welcome to 1998's techniques. Wow. Further, NCPS cannot detect hackers if their software uses a vulnerability that has not been publicly revealed, and DHS is not otherwise aware of so-called zero days, so they have no zero day protection. Uh, the, the report found that uh, along with unimplemented programs, employees ignoring security protocols and updates, and incompetent response drill teams, the DHS is wasting tons of money on cyber programs. It explains that, quote, the DHS currently operates extensive programs across several of its components and directorates focused on cybersecurity, including programs within the National Protection and Programs Directorate, uh, nearly $700 million annually, and the U.S. Secret Service, $10 million annually, and ISIS Homeland Security Initiative uh, Investigations Component. Uh, to that, the report reveals DHS is paying program administrator costs for continuous diagnostics and mitigation general service administration contracts worth billions that thus far most of the rest of the federal government do not want to use. So they're trying to deploy things. The rest of the federal go- government saying no thanks. Huge freaking mess. Yeah, the the thing that struck me trying to trying to think about okay, what is how is this usable or how is this useful to the common person, and, you know, obviously it's a little concerning that there's a push to 
expand the domain of of this group in what they're responsible for protecting into uh, into parts of private enterprise, which you know, I guess I'll I'll uh, I'll refrain from commenting on that part. But um, it struck me that a lot of this stuff probably if if there were a congressional panel within companies that were to write up a, uh, uh, a, a critical dissertation on my information security program or your information security program, what would it say? And what does that say you, you should do differently? And so what, for me, it was kind of a thought exercise on uh, given what was reported here and given what I know of my program, what would that report look like and how does that inform what I think my priorities should be? So that's a, you know, other than I I thought it was an interesting, uh, an interesting and timely uh, report. I would say one other takeaway I got it from, from an enterprise defense standpoint is you really need strong centralized leadership if you're going to be successful and effective. Good point. And you really need to have an, an overall unified vision and plan for information security. If you're going to try to do it in silos, if you're going to try to do it bits and pieces, you're never going to get it done. That is a very good point. So, uh, so that is episode 102 for, uh, for the week. And uh, as usual, we appreciate your time listening to us. If you have any ideas or thoughts or criticisms, send us an email to info at defensivesecurity.org. If you want to find links to our stories, uh, the show notes are available on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Callan on Twitter at Lurg. You can follow me on Twitter at malicious link. And, uh, you know, if you do like the show, please you know, refer us to a friend and, uh, and, or give us a, uh, a review on iTunes. That's always appreciated. You know, it's internet points for us. We, uh, we don't get anything other than the pleasure of knowing that, well, maybe we, we helped someone, uh, have a better week. <laughs> so, uh, with that, I will, uh, I bid you adieu and we will talk again next week. Have a great week, everyone. Thanks for listening. Take care. So you uh, you need to call Geek Squad? Yes. Yes, I do. Cool. I don't take no shit from a machine.